This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Holding pocket. Welcome to another episode of the Rabbit Hole Detectives, a podcast where I, Dr. Kat Jarman, Richard Coles and Charles Spencer chase the provenance of historical objects, both real and metaphorical. Each episode, we set one another the task of finding out as much as we can about a particular subject to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. After all, everything has a history. It just depends on how far down the rabbit hole you're prepared to go. And at the end of it all, our disembodied voice pronounces a winner. Hello again, rabbit holies. Hello, Hello cat. cat. So I'm oh. going to say, we've, we've, sort of, oh, oh, we're in sync. <laughs> we've been working together too long. Yeah. <laughs> so we were already, before we started, had some very gory conversations there. Does that mean we've sort of taken all the horrible, gory conversations Can I say, out of I action didn't, today? I didn't start any of the gory conversations. <laughs> well, People like Richard, just naming somebody randomly, starts a conversation about the first gas chamber and then lobs it my way. Well, you see... There is method in this madness, which is to draw off your ghoulish interest, yeah. your methods of execution before we're actually recording. Yes, so my brain's busy oh. thinking of all that. No, he yeah. just got it out of his system, so then they can be a little bit less gory. I'm interested in this obsession with execution, with judicial killing, Charles, or non-judicial mm. killing for that matter. I think it's a fascination with what humans are capable of doing to each other. And do you think also because you're interested in civil wars, right? You're interested in the awfulness of the Plantagenets, the awfulness of the English Civil War, and it is actually about how... I think it's a generational trauma. Well, the the thing I would most like to avoid more than anything, apart from overcooked pasta, is a civil <laughs> war. Can you think of anything worse? No. Nowhere to escape to. And having family on the other side yeah. as well. Well, there you go, Kat. Did you, well, in Norway. You. Did you have Thank a famous civil war in Norway? We've had lots of them, but we've mainly been fighting with our neighbours, really. The Tribal. The Danes and the Swedes. Oh, yes. <laughs> Just going back and forth. But that was, took a long time to settle down, really, didn't it? Yeah, and it's very recent that we've sort of... And was that because sorry. Sweden got so rich and powerful that it began to kind of push its weight around? I suppose so. And I mean, Denmark was the one for such a long time. Yeah. Weirdly being the smallest of the... Of the three countries, but why was so, Denmark? Why did Denmark punch above its weight? Do you think? Uh, I don't know. It's a good question. It doesn't seem fair, does it? But there's a sort of Germanic. I always think of Denmark as being more Germanic than the others. Is that right? Mm, no, maybe, but it's it's more connected, I suppose, to the rest of Central Europe. I like the rocky fastness of Norway. I like yes the mighty chasm of the fjords. I like the mountains. It's well, we were talking. We had lunch together just now, and we were talking about taking our tour to Norway, to Oslo, to Oslo, yes. or yes. Bergen. Yes, you now know how to pronounce all these places. Richard, you've been swatting up. Nearly Lofoten. Lofoten. Yes, very good. We have to do one live from Lofoten, surely. Lofoten. Yes. <laughs> Anyway, shall we get going? <laughs> yes. So, having got all the, well, most of the gruesomeness out of the way, uh, let's get on to our topics. And so I'm going to be starting this week with somebody I'm really admiring, actually, and that's Amelia Earhart. Oh, I love her. Yeah. yeah. She's fantastic. The more I've read about her, the more keen I've been on her. Obviously, this most famous disappearance really of of aviators definitely and then missing planes I think really and she's come up a little bit before but delving into her background and her stories is probably 
as interesting, I think, as her disappearance. So famously, her flight disappeared when she was trying to circumnavigate the world in July 1937. Still not been found, although there is a possible update if you've been following the news uh, to that, which I'll get back to later on. But going back to her starting point, so she was born in Kansas on the 24th of July 1897. And she comes from quite a reasonably well-off family, upper middle class family. But they were a little bit unsettled. They had um, various problems. Father was an alcoholic, so she moved around quite a lot with her mother. She spent a lot of time with her grandparents and her father figure wasn't really that strong. And and it said that that was part of what made her really want to kind of fend for herself and become very independent and not really depend on anyone else because she had that background. But as she was growing up, she first really came across pilots and the idea of flying when she went to visit her sister in Toronto in Canada after graduation. So she then came across a lot of wounded soldiers from the First World War and decided to volunteer as an assistant nurse. She came across a lot of pilots especially. But later on, she went to California, came across an air show at Long Beach. She took a 10-minute plane ride. And we have to remember, this is really quite early on in the history of aviation. And we've had Giles, you talk about that. So this was 1920. So we're literally within a couple of decades, 1903, the first flight by the Wright Brothers, as Mm -hmm. you talked about before, Giles. So she took this 10-minute plane ride and decided really that that was it for her. She was hooked and she was going to be flying. So she started saving up money, doing various jobs to be able to afford flying lessons. Took flying lessons from a female pilot, actually. Did everything she could to read and learn about it and immerse herself in aviation. She managed to buy her first plane in 1921. That was a second-hand yellow Kinner Airster biplane that she dubbed the Canary because of its colour, and quite quickly started really achieving quite a lot of things. So she was the first to fly to 14,000 feet, the first female pilot to fly to that height in in 22. Without oxygen, presumably. I would think so, yeah. Yeah. You'd notice it at over 10,000 feet, wouldn't you? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is really early day. I'm in 1922, so we're literally within 20 years of the also, first ever flight. Also, imagine buying a second-hand plane. I was just thinking, yes. you've you got to run as sweet as anything. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I have barely any trouble with the result. Why not? But she becomes really a pioneer in, in female aviation. So the year after, she becomes only the 16th woman to be issued a pilot's licence by the world's governing body for aeronautics. And... Again, she has some money problems. Obviously, this is quite an expensive hobby. Sells the plane, ends up in Boston in 1925, tries to go back to university, but runs out of money, works as a teacher and a social worker. But then suddenly in 1927, she starts getting back into it. She's involved in lots of flying aviation organisations. She starts writing as well. She's actually a really good writer. She writes Mm. a lot for newspapers, articles about aviation. And she becomes a bit of a local celebrity. So she's almost a bit like a modern day influencer, really. This then comes to a time when Charles Lindbergh has the first solo flight from New York to Paris in May 1927. And... Soon after this happens, there's also quite a push for having a woman fly across the Atlantic as well. So there's actually a search out for somebody to volunteer, actually as a passenger rather than a pilot. Amelia actually comes to the attention of the people trying to put this team together and gets picked. So she gets to be the first female passenger on this flight. Because at the time, even though she could fly, it wasn't really seen as sort of suitable for a woman to try to do that herself. So she flies across the Atlantic successfully, um, but she actually says that she felt more like a a sack of potatoes being just a passenger. Hmm. But she pretty much swears that pretty soon she's going to try to do it herself alone. This flight gathers huge attention. There's a ticker tape parade when she comes back to America. There's a reception by the president. And she writes a book about it called 20 Hours, 40 Minutes, which is the time that that flight took. And again, this is part of her her sort of outreach, as it were, and her, her part of her celebrity is, is as this woman who's, who's involved and interested in aviation. So we could see across the Atlantic in a jetliner at 38,000 feet or something, seven hours or thereabouts, but they're flying at what altitude, 10,000 feet or something? I assume so, yeah, I don't God, know. Imagine that. So you'd get all the bad weather, it's a long way, 20 hours, isn't yeah. it? Imagine that. Well, also, I mean, I was thinking, you know, with Lindbergh doing it in 1927, 
how he stayed awake. You know, he was the sole pilot. Yeah. Obviously, the danger would keep you awake, but you'll yes. snort off the dashboard. Yeah. Probably, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but this is something that comes in later with, with Amelia, actually, because a lot of the flights she ends up doing later on are really long distance. They're really hard work and she's doing them all solo. So she actually has so much energy. She works really hard and she's got that ability to stay awake and to, yes. to continue and to keep on going. And that seems to be part of her success. But at this point... So, so thrilling. Come on. It's so... Yeah. What a thrilling, well, thrilling thing to do. If, if it comes off. Yes. Imagine terrifying. I mean, if you were to nod off. Yeah. And it was bad weather and you have no artificial horizon, you'd be absolutely stuffed, wouldn't you? Yeah. That's extremely brave. And for a woman to do all of this and get involved as well, which at the time was, was obviously quite a unusual mm. one. Everything was new. But she came, keeps on going, promoting air travel and, and women in aviation as well. She also actually, her publisher, she bumps into at this time, is somebody called George Putman. And she ends up marrying him later on, actually. And he becomes her manager at one point as well. And I'll get back to that. But now she really wants to be established as a respected aviator. So she starts doing solo flights. First a woman to fly solo across North America. As first woman solo to fly across the Atlantic in 1932. So she successfully goes from North America, tries to reach Paris like Lindbergh has done, fails because of the conditions, but ends up landing in Northern Ireland. So that was a success. In well, not, Paris. Not navigationally. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but I think it was the conditions more than, yes, <laughs> more than yes. a failure. So she keeps on doing this and keeps on breaking records. She gets lots of attention. This is when she becomes an international heroine, essentially. Mm. Gets lots of medals. And she marries George in 1931. And they have a really interesting relationship. There's a lot going on there. And she actually quite famously writes him a letter on the day of the wedding where she says... I want you to understand I shall not hold you to any medieval code of faithfulness to me, nor shall I consider myself bound to you similarly. So they have a quite a sort of modern, open relationship, I think. Because Did she's he agree? Very, Do we know if he agreed to that? It seems like it, yeah. I yes. mean, he's, he's, he was already married before and I think they started out as an affair. So that's, clearly he was, is also quite happy to live under those mm -hmm. circumstances, mm -hmm. I think. But they seem to... Well, as far as I can see, be reasonably happy without both of them. But she's got this very independent character to her, which is very interesting. So this is 1931. And now we, we get to her disappearance, to this final feat that she tries to achieve. So the attempt was going to be to be the first person to circumnavigate the Earth around the equator, because obviously that's the longest distance. So she flies in a Lockheed Electra plane. She's originally meant to have three people with her, Captain Harry Manning, the first navigator, Fred Noonan, the second navigator, and Paul Mance, who is the technical advisor. They start out going west from California to Hawaii, end up having problems with the plane, is damaged. They have to wait, go back to California, and then start again, but going east. And now only Noonan is on the team. There's various issues going on. And they do really well at first. They go from Miami to Central and South America, Africa, Indian Ocean, and then eventually end up in New Guinea in June 1937. They do 22,000 miles, only have 7,000 left. And this last little stage, they plan to go and land on a small island called Howland Island, which is 2,556 miles away. It's a, a tiny island between Hawaii and Australia. Very difficult to find. So they have to rely on different types of navigation, including celestial navigation, they also have a ship from the US Coast Guard, a vessel stationed off the island that's meant to send up a smoke plume for them to see so that they can land in the right place. But unfortunately, there are all sorts of problems taking place quite soon after they take off. 2nd of July, 1937, 12.30am, they take off. But they haven't brought quite enough fuel. They haven't got the right wavelength frequency radio equipment. They seem to have really bad weather. It's overcast, damaged antenna, possibly also inaccurate maps, lots of issues going wrong. And then there's various radio communications with this ship at about seven, between seven and eight in the morning. And eventually at 8.43, the last communication with the ship is there where they're saying, we think we're in the right place. We think we can see, we know where you are, but we can't actually see you. They also say that they're low on fuel. And then nothing is heard. They lose contact and they clearly don't land. And nobody knows actually what happened. They're lost at sea. The ship starts a search 
66 aircraft are actually involved in it. Uh, there was a $4 million rescue operation taking place, but nothing is found. Mm. And eventually, on the 18th of July, 1937, the search officially ends. And two years later, Amelia is declared legally dead. And then for all those decades, it's just become a huge mystery what actually happened to them. I remember there was a... One theory was that she'd been captured by the Japanese, which has been debunked. There's a photograph which is clearly not of her, etc. As well as she was eaten, wasn't she, by human flesh-eating people in Yes. In yes. Yeah. All sorts of conspiracy theories, and this with the Japanese is the most sort of common and popular yes. one, really. The most likely, I think, is that the plane just crashed in the yeah. sea and they died. There's also a possibility, which also is quite popular, that they landed at a reef in the Pacific Ocean, which is 350 miles southeast of Howland Island, called the Nikumaroro Reef. And there, various objects and artifacts have been found, pieces of clothing, bits of aluminium. So there's this thought that they might have actually washed up there or landed nearby and essentially just lived out their days God. until they died. Is there anything on that reef that would sustain life? Well, I think fishing and if there's a water source I think there are water sources so this would have been possible some human remains were actually found there reportedly in the 1940s near a tree and apparently a new research team sending out sniffer dogs there in 2017 also marked a spot on the island with human remains a new analysis, quite a recent one, of those bones compared them. So they've not been able to do any DNA analysis or really check them, but just on the morphology and the shape of them. One of the researchers has said, oh, yes, that's quite likely, but it doesn't seem to have much conviction to it. I wonder if there'd be a case for perhaps extracting some plaque from the teeth <laughs> of these Well, yes. <laughs> because I understand that you can tell a lot about someone from their yes. dental plaque. Apparently so, yeah. <laughs> we might get back to that in a future child. episode. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I mean, on bottom line, we don't know what happened. The latest update is in January 2024. A team called the Deep Sea Vision Exploration Team say that they have found a sonar image of an object on the Pacific Ocean floor that matches the shape of this type of plane perfectly. I hope she died instantly. I hate the idea of the two of them struggling, probably injured on this reef and waiting to die. Yeah, can you imagine and struggling for food? I do wonder. I wonder if you might just try to cling on to life as tenaciously as possible, just in the hope that maybe a ship will sail. Yes. Or maybe you would just find some way of accepting that life, the sort of castaway life. Really. Yeah, no, I'm just doing a VAT return. Yes. You could <laughs> do your yoga and uh, yes. <laughs> I don't get know. fit. I, don't I know. think probably desert islands are not as much fun as they look, are they? No. no. It's amazing that their enduring interest in this story and all the conspiracy theories. Well, she was such a huge celebrity at the time, wasn't yeah. she? And yes. tricks. Yes. And she was glamorous, you know. She yeah. looked the part. And she was very intelligent. She was very, very bright. She worked so hard. When she was doing all this promotional work, she was doing lecture tours. Mm. And as we know, it's quite hard work to go around and, and talk. And she would just go from one to another and work a lot for the course of furthering women's roles, women's position in society and, and in aviation. So, I mean, sometimes you get these people and they get really famous and you think, well, they're not actually that great. But, but also I think aviation she was. was such a big deal, wasn't it? It was like they were the sort of astronauts of their time, yeah. weren't they? Yeah, absolutely. It was very like that, I think, wasn't it? Mm. That's why the ticket tape reception seemed... Yes. Yeah. But how brave and incredibly brave. And you're the surviving ones. I mean, so many of them, as we discussed before, didn't make it. So, you know, we know these names because they did great things, but the names of the ones who plunged into the Atlantic were just completely forgotten. Lost at sea. Yeah. I'd quite like to be lost at sea one day. <laughs> when I'm 85. Just yes. Glug, glug. Yeah. Would you like to know my favourite fact? Yes. yes. I love the fact that she also essentially worked as a fashion designer, which I didn't realise. No. So she had her own line of clothing. She did some sewing herself and designed the clothes. And they were functional women's clothing. So practical, useful things, uh, including dresses and blouses and suits and things, initially using her own sewing machine. And she modelled them herself as well. And she also designed a line of lightweight canvas-covered plywood luggage, which was actually sold right into the 1990s. Really? That's so good. I think that's great. An all-rounder, we like her. Yes. yes. 
I think we've got a comment from our disembodied voice. Yeah, so Richard, you asked about whether Amelia Earhart flew without oxygen. And yes, she did fly the Canary up to 14,000 feet in an open cockpit without oxygen. And she claimed the women's altitude record for doing so. That's quite an achievement because it's very cold at that altitude too. Yeah. Well, there we are. What a gal, so, though. Yeah, yes. I think so. I, I, mean, I really like that black and white photograph of her yeah. looking sort of indomitable and very alive. That's the tragedy. You know, she died so young. Well, she was 40 or something. I mean, she's yeah. so young when she died. Would you have been an aviatrix in those days, Kat? Maybe. I could see you doing. At the moment, I don't have any interest in flying at all. <laughs> but I can, could see myself in that sort of time period when it was something quite new and exciting. Yeah. I like the idea of it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So there we go. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Then, Richard, we're on to you now, I think. Yes. You've been looking into the accordion. Yes, and this is directed <laughs> at both of you, Kat, because of your denial of your folk heritage and your refusal to put on your bunat and dance around in Norwegian <laughs> folk traditions. And Charles, your lifelong commitment to Morris dancing. <laughs> I think both of those are enterprises which are mocked at and scorned, right? The same with the well, accordion. by you. By you. Not, well, obviously by me, of course. <laughs> the accordion. There's a famous cartoon by Gary Larson of the blessed in the afterlife entering the pearly gates and being handed a harp and the damned entering hell and being handed an accordion. <laughs> it is an instrument which is not universally loved, but an instrument I particularly love and indeed play. Now, interesting history. It goes right back to, oh, a couple of millennia BCE when the Chinese were playing an instrument called a zheng. A zheng is a very simple free reed aerophone. The accordion is essentially a free reed aerophone. What that means is it's a reed which vibrates freely and produces a sound when a column of air is passed over it. That's the harmonica, that's the zheng, that's also the accordion. So instruments of that worked on that principle around for a very, very long time, not doing very much. It was the rise of technology that really got the ball rolling. So the early 1820s in Berlin, there was a bloke there who came up with something which is almost recognisable as a sort of recording. But the person who really takes the credit for having invented it, or at least the name, was a man called Kirill Demian, who was a Viennese, but of Armenian extraction. And in 1829, he invented something that we would actually recognise as an accordion. Basically, a set of reeds and bellows which pass air through those reeds, and they're keyed, so you can play them and they can produce chords and notes and so on. Refined, interestingly, by an Englishman, 1830, I think it was, a fellow called Charles Wheatstone, whose name you might remember because he's very famous in telegraphy. He invented a kind of bridge which enabled telegraphic communication. Also notorious for pestering Palmerston, who so disliked him, he used to hide behind a sofa when Wheatstone <laughs> came into view. But what Wheatstone did was put a fingerboard and the reeds on either side of a set of bellows. So essentially what you have then is something that looks like the accordion. You know what I mean? Yes. Bellows in the middle, and then on one side you have a box which contains the reeds which produce the sound and the other side you have the buttons or the keys that enable you to play what's exciting about the accordion well i'll tell you what's exciting about the accordion it's the poor man's orchestra and the reason why it had this extraordinary success in the 19th and 20th centuries is because it enabled one person to effectively do everything you need to give an evening's entertainment or to provide for a dance in your village hall or down the pub. Because the accordion not only plays a melody, but it also provides the accompaniment. So the, the accordion as we know it today, well, there are various versions of it, and they took a little while to evolve and develop. But essentially, you have on one side, you have the bass buttons, and those are buttons which you press and give you a bass note. And then above that, you have another set of notes that would give you a major chord, a minor chord, a diminished chord, whatever it might be. So you get a bit of variation around that. And they're usually worked in fifths, so you can work your way around the keyboard. And then in your other hand, you'd have either 
other buttons, chromatic or diatonic, or a piano keyboard is the one we know now. So essentially you've got two things happening. You can play the tune and at the same time you can play the accompaniment. They're also famously, notoriously loud. Why? Well, partly because metal reeds with air pass through them tend to be loud anyway, but partly really because you wanted it to be loud so people could dance. So the accordion, the reason why it proliferated and spread was because it gave you a night out, if you see what mm -hmm. I mean. It was mm -hmm. the jukebox of its time. It was the orchestra. It was the dance band of its time. But only one person needed to do it. And Charles, question. Well, I mean, you're very musical and you can play a lot of instruments. Is it an easy instrument to pick up? Yeah, relatively easy to play. So if the piano accordion, which is the kind I play, you have a piano keyboard because I'm a pianist and I'm my way around that. And actually yes. the button, the buttons which give you bass and chords are actually quite easy to master. And they're set out with a thing called the Stradella system, which is a very intuitive system to play. In other countries, in Russia, the Bayan, for example, is what they call the accordion. They have a button, chromatic button system, which is actually much better. It's not set out like a keyboard at all. It's just buttons. But the greatest, I think, virtuosos of the accordion today are probably playing button accordions and the bayans that was very early in russia too and that was um, two fellas from the city of tula tula which was famous for metalwork and gun metal used to make guns there a lot they went to a trade fair in nizhny novgorod in about 1830 and found an accordion then took it home and started making their own to give you an idea of the success of the accordion as an enterprise in 1865 i think they made and sold 50,000 accordions or bayans in Tula. Ten years later, 700,000. Oh. <laughs> so you had your band. You could go yes. along, you could play. It was loud. People could hear through it. You could dance to it. You could fill the dance hall, blah, 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 blah. Your local music would be played on that instrument. Some of them were very simple and were diatonic and would only play a simple scale. Some played a different note on the exhale from the inhale. They're all sort of different variations of it, but they all gave you basically that same thing, the ability to play accompaniment and melody at the same time. Then, of course, emigration was a huge yeah. thing. So lots of people who went out from Eastern Europe or wherever it was, ended up in Southern America, ended up in, especially in the United States, they took the accordion with them. It was portable. And it meant that you could take not only your entertainment, but also remember the songs and the tunes of your country, your village, your religion, your tradition. Mm. So the accordion was absolutely huge in America. And the golden age of the accordion really went up to the 1960s. We forget now, but one of the sort of biggest shows on American television was the Lawrence Welk show. Lawrence Welk was a famous accordionist in his band leader. And in his band, he had another really famous accordionist. They sold millions and millions of records. Everybody played the accordion. Jimmy Stewart, the famous actor, was a professional accordionist and indeed played the accordion in at least one of his cowboy films, I think it was. Then, of course, what came along was essentially the rise of electronic music and the electric guitar, and that rather banished the accordion. The polka, that was a big thing. Very big in Norway, Kat. And how do you say it, accordion, in Norwegian? Trekspil. Trekspil. Yeah. Trekspil. Trekspil. Was very a huge good. thing. And the polka, or polk, I think it's called in Norway, was very, very popular too. Umcha, 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 umpa, jump around, mm -hmm. jump around, jump around, jump around. With the Norwegian, what? Trekspil. And trek spiel is play, presumably. Yeah. What's trek? Pull or draw. Oh, it's so, a pull play. play. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite straightforward. I love the, the, the simplicity <laughs> yes. of it. It's there. They did try and make a trendy accordion for pop music, but it didn't really catch on. There are, of course, digital accordions. Roland make a very fine digital accordion with a MIDI interface, a musical instrument digital interface, so that you can plug that in and play along with other stuff. But I think it's very much... It belongs to very traditional folk cultures. That's where it sits most comfortably. All sorts of different ones all over the world. You get Cajun accordion music. Mm -hmm. You get the bandonian in Argentina, which is version of the accordion, which is, of course, famous for tango. And it was so popular in Italy. Do you know, if you want an accordion, where do you go? Somewhere in Italy. Castelfidardo is where you go. <laughs> in Le Marche, it's not far from Ancona. And that is the centre of accordion. But now, if you're an accordion nerd, and yes. I must confess, 
There's kind one of in the room. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> what you are to Morris dancing, I am to accordion music. And what you are, well, you deny your own folk culture by pretending <gasps> you don't do dance not. in your boonad. I think you do. Um, but you would go to Castel Fidardo and you'll find there still um, the great, I mean, it's a much reduced market for what it used to be, but the great Italian makers are there. And you know, if you're really after a fine accordion of the kind that we're used to playing, you would go there. Button accordions made in different places. Do you ever find, I mean, you mentioned Mr. Welk and he had another accordionist. Would you have two accordions playing at the same time or is that not Charles, really done? You'd have whole bands of accordions. Oh my goodness. Well, think of Scottish country music, for example. Jimmy yes. Shan, the great Jimmy Shan. He was an accordion player, had an accordion band. Interesting innovation on the accordion that he played. It had the Stradella system in the left hand, the boom cha cha, boom cha, arranged in fifths. But in the right hand, it had what we call a bisonomic action. So instead of playing one note in and out, it would play two notes, one on the inhale, one on the exhale, if you see what I mean. Mm. So there are all these sorts of local variations on it. Mm. And I'm leading up to my favourite. I feel we should have a sort of squeeze box. Sound exciting, actually. (laughs) One of the most distinctive accordions is the Acadian accordion, which you'll find in southern Louisiana now. As you know, sort of Cajun music and Zydeco around there. Again, the accordion features in that, but there's a very particular one in Acadian music which came with German farmers, which went into the rice-growing areas of southern Louisiana. And they brought German accordions with them, Herner accordions with them, one of the big manufacturers, not so big now, came with them over from the old country and they played them. Then after a while, they sort of fell apart. And then in the end, they started kind of making sort of monster accordions out of old bits and bobs and sort of nobbling them together. In the end, they created the Acadian accordion, which is a very particular kind of one. And there's an interesting fellow there called Mark Savoy, who's a chemical engineer, but he makes them. And now Hona stopped making the accordions that they turned into Acadian accordions. But now this man makes Acadian accordions, which he (laughs) exports to Germany, which only goes to show what a funny old thing history is. Absolutely. The accordion. Have I sold it to you? Kind of. I think so. Yeah, My sister Sarah cool. used to play it. Really? Yeah. Where part- did she learn that? I don't know. She was very musical. It's Is it very to accompany you Morris dancing? <laughs> yes. <laughs> the performing Spencers. No, I just remember it. And she was so good. She's a very good pianist, you know. And when you see somebody really go, I think it needs energy. Verdi, for example was the person in the great composer. And also, it played a big part in the Risorgimento in Italy, was Italy unified. Mm. French troops in the employ of the Papal States brought the accordion in, and then the Italians started using it, spread throughout Italy, and it became a huge thing. And Verdi, in the end, said, this is a serious instrument, and it should be studied in the conservatoires. Well, so now you will find, in most of the conservatoires, you'll find schools of accordion playing. And, I mean, there's a magnificent player like Richard Galliano, for example, who is, I think, the greatest accordion virtuoso of our time but what his playing is absolutely up there with the greatest of a virtuoso on any instrument but you'll still find it being played cheerfully for a bit of dance music in a back street bar somewhere too what the age of people playing it is it something that young people get into anymore is it something that's going to die out a bit or is there enough interest i think in it's dying it? out really because i think yeah. the opportunities when people would come together and create their own entertainment using instruments mm. those are fewer than they were i'd hate to think it dying out entirely and there are lots of people who love folk music who would yeah. carry on my neighbor on the old 12th the old 12th night by the old calendar we've been over what that was before she asked me to come around to wassail her fruit trees because traditionally you wassail your fruit trees to ensure a bumper crop in the year ahead so i took my accordion and we sang the wassail to the fruit trees <laughs> if only you'd been there charles dancing the i could have i could have done yeah. and Kat, if you'd been there as well in yeah. your boonard i feel those apples would be the best we've ever had okay, next year <laughs> Invite us. You didn't invite us, Richard. That's, true. That's the problem. That was my so error, don't come and complain. You, you didn't talk invite about these us. Things so. afterwards. Seriously, yeah. Kat, we've got to get you in that boonard. Yeah, okay. Fine. <laughs> and you, Charles, <laughs> with your jingling legs. Yes. Well, you can tell the enthusiasm in both of us yeah. is almost, you know, it's bursting down it's, the microphone. I think it's inevitable. These are big bribes, I think, for this to actually happen. I'll play the accordion. Yes, yeah. yeah, so you, you get the easy part. You yeah. can swan around in your hat. Yeah. And, you can and I'll do. wave a hanky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant.
Did you have something you wanted to add to disembodied voice? Yeah, I did actually. Oh, God. <laughs> so just going back, the um, Jimmy Stewart movie was called Night Passage and it said that he didn't think much of the script but he took it on as a role because he wanted to show off his accordion talents and then they re-recorded all of those accordion moments with a professional player prior to the film's release. No, I didn't know that. So that's he was a shame. A handy, he was a, seriously a handy player. Clearly not handy enough <laughs> for the, the night man? passage. It was the third man. And Kat, I think you actually asked where does the word accordion come from and it comes from the German word, I presume it's pronounced the same accordion spelt with two Ks and it comes from the word accord in German meaning sort of musical chord or to be in tune. Thank you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, well, uh, yes, I suppose, actually, from that, I am talking about performing in my piece today. That's true. Um, the peg for this is the fact that it's in June, it'll be the 40th anniversary of the Cirque du Soleil. And uh, it's something I've been lucky enough to go to, I think, at least three times. And I didn't know much about its background. I knew that it was, like I think a lot of people know, it was started by a couple of street performers. But the reason for it coming into fruition was 40 years ago this summer was the celebration of the 450th anniversary of a Frenchman called Jacques Cartier sailing up the St. Lawrence and essentially founding the the French structure of Canada. So Quebec City, that sort of thing is down to him. I have to say, diving off into a rabbit hole straight away, that Cartier is a deeply unpleasant man. Mm. And yes, sorry, but uh, he he also wasn't the brightest. You know, he was sent to Quebec City by King Francois I, looking for gold spices and a passage to Asia. Well, obviously, the passage to Asia is not his fault. But he came back laden with pyrite and quartz, thinking they were gold and diamonds. Uh, But he was very unpleasant to the native Canadians, the people living there, the Huron Iroquois. The one thing he did do of some note was borrow their name for a settlement, which was a Kanata, and named the country Canada. I didn't know that. Yeah, but he was a bad man and he took some of the local chieftains, he lured them onto his ship and took them back to France essentially as captives. So not a man to celebrate, but maybe his finding Canada on behalf of France was something the Quebecois wanted to celebrate. And there were two men, a man called Sainte-Croix and another man called Guy or Guy Laliberté, and they proposed that as part of the celebration of the 450th anniversary of the French finding the east coast of Canada, there should be a circus. This was uh, going to be a circus without animals, uh, yeah. something we're totally, absolutely at ease with now. But back then was quite a sort of revolutionary idea. And from this has spawned a performance culture, which the Cirque du Soleil is, which has been seen in 450 cities in 60 countries, watched by at least 180 million spectators live. And it's based on really the the urge to seize two hours of magic from life and to see something quite spectacular on many levels, really. They wanted something from this little blue and white tent in June 1984. They wanted to do something that would be transportable around the Quebec area just to celebrate this discovery. But it's ended up being this global phenomenon. And they wanted to do a sort of artistic storytelling. It's not traditional circus where one performance predictably follows another. And we all remember the circus acts of the past. It wasn't that. It was blending circus arts with elements of theatre and dance, even came up with their own language. If you've been to Cirque du Soleil or watched it on television, they talk this sort of rather bizarre language to each other. Is it, uh, is yeah. it basically clowns with a degree? Clowns for the degree is part of it, but the acrobatic skill is extraordinary. I've never seen it, Charles. I oh, haven't no. either. Have you not seen no. it? Well, there's a trip. Yes. It's on in the Albert Hall very soon, actually. But you, like, you like it? Well, I do. As I will touch on later, I'm a very poor 
audience member because I'm always terrified something's going to go wrong. But anyway, the, the idea is it's an innovative approach to the circus art of old. The thing is, it was so innovative that it nearly didn't survive. Everyone thinks, oh, it must have just been a huge success. And it was a success. The next year, from the $1 million that La Liberté had got as a grant towards it, he had $60,000 left. And he went to the government and said, look, this is really good. It's caught on and we should make something of it. And Quebec province said, no, we're not prepared to fund it. But it was the premier of Quebec said, no, it's really something. And they started to tour with it in Canada. It didn't go well at all. In 1985, they had a turnout in Toronto, 15%. And when they took it to Niagara Falls, it was 4%. And they worked out that the marketing, it wasn't just about going where people were. They had to market it correctly. And also they learned that somewhere like Niagara Falls, people are going to have a look at the waterfall. You've got some and they, competition. Yes, yeah. but they're going for the day and going home. They're not building in time for a show as well. But over time, the perfectionism behind the Cirque du Soleil culture attracted international performers. So the Quebecois who started it were joined by the first raft of international performers came from Belgium, Switzerland, and Argentina. And then in 1987, it went international when it went to Los Angeles, California, over the border. And the company has performed in all these places, but it's toured across North America, Europe, Asia. It's huge in China, very, very successful there. And there's been various different shows that they take. One of the, I suppose, criticisms is that they're very sort of gimmicky, but they've taken different ideas. So Allegria, this was first performed in 1994, and it's, it's a show of acrobatics and a hauntingly beautiful score. The music is very much part of the show. I think you would love it, actually, Richard. I, like, to, yeah. I think I would like it. Yeah. yeah. One of the iconic acts from Allegria is the Power Track Act, where performance show extraordinary agility while bouncing off trampolines. And I know you're a trampoline person. <gasps> that was your yes. sport. It one, was my only sport. While I was going, <laughs> yeah. Well, it was, anyway, it's one of your talents. And then through to Carr, there's one called Mystere, which was from 1993. Carr, this show was first stage in 2005, and it involved epic battles, dynamic stagecraft, and a vertical stage that rotates and tilts, creating what they build as gravity-defying stunts. But there's been all sorts of financial problems. You know, again, on a good year, it makes a billion dollars a year through merchandise and tickets. But a bad but the bad times, were they've had dips and troughs. But of course, 2020 was a yeah. disaster. They had a big 90, payroll, I guess. Yeah, 4,000 people employed. The insurance as well, I imagine, would be quite... Yes, of which about 1,500 are performers and the rest is the crew. You know, they're going on simultaneously around the world in different places. But, you know, in 2020 with COVID, 95% layoffs, as I say. And these people are paid quite well. You know, a lot of the performers, from what we know, the performers are getting up to $180,000 each, the key ones. It's just a bit like Panto, isn't it? It's a kind of hugely generates an awful lot of income, but they're not like world famous people, are they? You can earn that amount, that yeah. sort of money and be highly celebrated in their own world. But it's not, they're not on chat shows, are they? No. And also the training, you know, that the minimum training is 12 hours a week just to stay on top of it. But also there are people who are well known in their various sports, There's, uh, Olympic athletes and American footballers, people who've really had a successful career in athletics. Oh, really? They become these people, but they become anonymized because they're wearing the green paint or whatever it is that's the theme of that particular show. So you retool yourself as a Cirque du Soleil performer and you're celebrated, but you lose your brand in a way. So you're, you're just part of the whole group and the performance. You're not a yeah, performer. It, well, it, it, that's an interesting point you touch on that because they don't see themselves as just performers. The Cirque du Soleil brand seems absolutely legitimately, this isn't doesn't seem to be marketing, to build themselves as a family. They really look after people. And until about 2013, they would pay for the families of the performers to come and the schooling of children from the families to go on tour with them. But quite often, if you were a jobbing acrobat, you'll be living out of hotels and moving every week to perhaps a different city, perhaps a different country. It's a, it's a huge international operation. Now I suspect it of having a cultic element to it. <laughs> yes. I wonder if it does. 
Well, certainly some of the followers, some of the audience do go, you know, dozens of times. They follow it around the world and watch the same performance. And they've also had, they've adapted to the mass market in Las Vegas. They've been one of the acts that's been very popular there. They had a score there of Elvis songs, another one of Michael Jackson's songs. When did you first come across it, Charles? I've been to it in uh, Los Angeles probably about uh, 12 years ago and London about 10 years before that. And I went to it about five years ago. I was going to go this Sunday, actually, but something else popped up. I would go again, but I suppose we're getting to, I don't know if it's my favourite facts, but before we get to that, I just want to touch on the fact that Mr. Laliberte, who started as a stilt walker in the street performing, ended up with $1.2 billion. He's now sold out. He sold 90% and then his final 10% more recently after COVID struck. And he has a wonderful house in French Polynesia. He was the first Canadian space tourist. He's very interested and concerned by the future of mankind and water supply. But so he's at the sort of pinnacle of what is my favorite fact, which is what happens to the acrobats? Because I am, one of my many weirdnesses is not really enjoying circus acts where there's danger because I just think something's bound to go wrong. So So if I say favourite fact, I'm going to go (laughs) my most interesting fact is injuries and death. I knew it. I knew it. Of course he was going to come back to that. Well... I've mentioned they have 4,000 worldwide people working for them, 1,300 actually artists. And between 2002 and 2006, there was a very scientific study on what happened to the performers. And extraordinarily, they have a, a lower rate of injury and death than professional gymnasts. You have to imagine, because I know neither of you have seen it. They are doing extraordinary things at extraordinary heights, very intricate acts, not your traditional trapeze artists, much more going on than that, because it's a whole performance and things are moving around. But we have had some deaths. And I know, I know. There's some terrible ones. But the one I came across, there was an acrobat who died in a fall on stage during the Volta show, Volta being one of the programs in Tampa in 2018. Another died in rehearsals in Montreal in 2009. And the one that was very sad was uh, in 2013, this poor lady fell 27 meters from the high wire into a pit. And the audience thought it was part of the act. It was terrible. But she died uh, on the way to the hospital. And then one of the founding people, a man called Olivier Rochette, who's the son of the co-founder, Gilles Sancroix, died of his injuries in 2016 when hit by a piece of rigging in San Francisco. But if you think of the statistics I gave you at the beginning, it's a very, very low casualty rate. I mean, tragic for all those I've mentioned. But, you know, they look after their people. And when they've had these accidents, it's against this extraordinary roster of trainers, psychotherapists, performance psychologists, physiotherapists, and the fact that they're really well looked after. This is an interesting thing, because circus works because the jeopardy is, is that somebody might yes. come yeah. a cropper, right? It's like Amelia Earhart, isn't it? One of the reasons yeah. why that is such a resonant story is because we know that they are risking their lives. My performance of the Irish washerman on the accordion might be said to endanger life in one form or another. <laughs> but I mean, these are re- actually these related. I mean, the accordion is a form of popular entertainment. Circus is a form of popular entertainment. What gets an ooh and an ah from the crowd? Mm-hmm. What gets you your ticket take reception? It's what dazzles with virtuoso performance. It's risk, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it is, it is risk. But also with Cirque du Soleil, what's really intriguing is the absolute precision of synchronised act. I don't get why you like it, Charles, because you don't like it if people, (laughs) if someone could fall off and hurt themselves. You don't like that. But you do like Cirque du Soleil. I think the artistry is so amazing and the music and the, what was very surprising to people when they first went nearly 40 years ago was that there's a lot of dry ice and synthesizers and you're not really expecting that. Back then they were expecting a rather hard put upon, yeah, clowns and and bears and elephants and all that sort of ghastliness. So no, it's something, something really good. But in this look at the employees lot, 
of this great acrobatic troupe that somebody said what they really liked was working at Cirque du Soleil, they have an excellent work-life balance. And I thought, as an acrobatic troupe, what else do you want? That's a very interesting thing to say. If you you ran away to the circus, perhaps you did, I don't know, what job would you like? I'm not sure I'm going to be an acrobat, actually. Rollerblader, obviously. Oh, yes, I could do. What about ringmaster? Yeah, I could do that as well. Charles? I think throwing the knives. Knife <laughs> yes. <throwing. laughs> yes. Are you accurate enough? Or well, is that I part was. Of the fun? At my prep school, my boarding school, there was a bit of a knife culture, so we got quite used to that. <laughs> knife culture? Well, we all carried sheath knives. You perfected it. There was a particular tree we used to throw our knives oh, into. We made knives in woodwork. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> That's make so our Viking. Knives. Yeah. Make <laughs> well, knives in the... Yeah. Anyway. What about you, Richard? Oh, trapeze, of course. Yes. Yeah. I trapeze onto the trampoline. I can remember Billy Smart Circus coming yes. to Kettering. I must have been very young, I don't know, six or seven, and going to see it and just being bewitched by this man on the trapeze. He was the catcher bloke who went to and fro, but he was a striking fellow and he had green spangly tights on. Yes. And I still remember it now. You Go see? Figure. Excellent. That's an there image too. Seared, seared into your memory at an early age. This is a good one. We've had... Extraordinary aviatrix, as we've had flying through the air with the greatest of ease. We've had bands of folk musicians yes. touring the world. It's been a mm. jolly one, hasn't we've it? We've thrown a girdle week. around the earth. Yes, yes. <laughs> very good. That sort of thing. Thank you very much. <laughs> so I think that just leaves us to reveal the winner of this week's episode. Well, I want to give it to the jukebox of its time. Thank you. The accordion. Well done, Richard. Well done. Very good. It was very good, very compelling. I should have brought it today and I could serenade you with it. Yeah. thank God for small (laughs) masses. Well, I'm going to bring it to yours this weekend. No, do actually. Yeah, yeah. I'm not bringing an accordion to your house. I'd love to. Yeah, I'd love it. You would hate it and also it would mean dancing, which you hate more than anything. I'm a good host. Bang out a few steps. (laughs) So that then finally does leave us with the only thing, which is to share our next topics that we are going to be researching. So, Charles, I know there's a, a new hobby of yours. You're going to be looking into Tai Chi. Yes. And, Richard, yes. you'll be looking at glazes. Ceramic glazes. Yes. Yes. And I have one, which is actually especially for you, Richard, of my homework. I'm going to be talking about dental plaque yes <laughs> at last at finally last. <laughs> <laughs> so very there we go. good so that's it for this week i think thank you everyone out there for listening please subscribe and leave us a review because it really helps people find us when they're searching for a new podcast to listen to you can also send us an email if you like especially if you have a topic that you'd like to suggest to us that's rabbitholedetectives at gmail.com so in the words from richard adams watership down If there's going to be a story, don't you think I've got as good a right as anyone to choose it? Mm. Profound. Very, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Goodbye. Bye. Bye.